This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers at one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. Let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Michelle Stanley along with you for Countrywide. I'm coming to you from Garriara Country up in Port Hedland in Western Australia's Pilbara. On today's program, you're going to get a sense of what's driving up the prices of some of your favourite supermarket items. But you might be surprised to hear that others have gone the opposite way. I mean, you could buy seven bananas for $1.80. Like, I don't even believe the retailers are making any money out of that. What the hell are they trying to do? It just doesn't make sense. You'll also find out what's driving a surge in popularity for a Scottish icon in Australia. Yeah, they're a bit of a fad, I suppose. I don't know how long we're going to see this price bubble for, whether the fad will wear off. And before I leave you, let's have a little nibble on some sheep fodder. Yeah, a plant which is often used to feed livestock in some more saline parts of the country. It's being served up in high-class restaurants across Australia. This is often called a salty grape, and chefs use this with uh, mainly with seafood. So it's got a nice zingy, sweet, salty taste to it. What do you reckon? It's definitely salty. Yeah, <laughs> it's full of, full of salt, mate. That's what it's, that's what it's there for. So. You'll get a taste soon. First, though, it feels like every industry across the country right now is crying out for employees, and the agricultural sectors are no different. But there are fresh hopes that a solution could be found in an unexpected place, the stream of refugees coming into Australia from Ukraine. Forty refugees have travelled from Sydney to meet with members of the agricultural sector in the central west of New South Wales. It's to try and fast-track the process of finding work in the area. Hamish Cole has this report. Four months after being forced to flee Ukraine following the Russian invasion, Vitaly Tarnasevich is hoping to find a home in the region. He has been blown away by the support he has received. Everybody apologise. Me, this has happened. They understand this is too tough to be in this moment in Ukraine. And yeah, they are... Somebody I started to cry, so, yeah, really. And they wanted to help as much as possible, yeah, like a big family. It's a sentiment echoed by many Ukrainians who visited the Central West over the weekend. They all are crying, or almost crying, when they see that level of support they are facing, the uh, people that they meet. They haven't expected that as well. Uh, most of people are desperate uh, and they lost everything in Ukraine and they were thinking about how to stay alive, how to survive and uh, this massive support from the community, both Ukrainian and specifically from Australian community, uh, is just uh, something impressive and very crucial for them. Out of the terrible situation unfolding in Ukraine, local businesses and farmers in Orange are hoping a solution to the labour crisis has been found. Keisha Tyler is the operations manager of an orchard farm just outside of Orange. Like many in the industry, they have struggled to find workers since the pandemic began. It's really, really hard. Um, I'm trying to hire new staff every week. 
there's just no one coming over, um, especially who want to work in agriculture. Um, so it really is a struggle. By offering full-time employment and accommodation, Keisha is hoping these refugees could fill the gap. I think it's going to be great for both ends. I think if we can figure out a way for them to feel happy and comfortable in Orange, and that's going to, I think the main point is if they're happy, they're going to be wanting to stay with us and wanting to work for us. Gillian Hindmarsh from the Rural Australians for Refugees says many of these Ukrainians come with farming backgrounds or have skill sets that the regions are in dire need of. There's great demand for positions in agriculture and many of these Ukrainian refugees have actually got experience in agriculture. They also come with their CVs today which include uh, working in hospitality and te uh, education, um, childcare, They've got numerous skill sets that we as regional Australians are crying out for. It's a win-win on both parts. It, it seems that um, regional Australia relies very heavily on backpackers um, and I guess that's part of why we have the problem at the moment. But we actually need to look at uh, skilling up um, you know, our refugees and also our young people to actually fulfil these positions and recognising that these, all these jobs play an important role in running this country. For former beekeeper Vitali, he is already thinking of how he can get involved in the industry. Beekeeping is not too huge business. It's, it's for my soul, for my heart, for my brain, it's super. Ukrainian refugee Vitali Tarnasevich finishing that report from Hamish Cole. First, it was lettuce getting a bad rap for reaching incredible highs. Now strawberries are also selling for staggering prices. As customers struggle with rising cost of fresh fruit and vegetables, farmers are also grappling with skyrocketing fixed costs. Landline's Courtney Wilson explains. Right now is when the price for strawberries often hits its peak. But as Tina McPherson from Tina Berries near Bundaberg in Queensland knows... Wet weather has wreaked havoc on the early winter crop. At the moment, for example, the price for strawberries is really high. There aren't very many. The southern um, states have finished their strawberry production and the Queensland is only just coming into strawberry production. And just as consumers are experiencing rising prices in the grocery store... Primary producers are also grappling with skyrocketing costs. My email is full every day from um, suppliers who are telling us that they are increasing their costs due to increased costs of freight, um, increased costs of, of labour. Um, so, so even if it's just a few cents, every few cents um, adds up. I don't think it's any different if you're growing wheat or barley or peanuts or macadamias or milking cows beef production, we're all in the same boat. These are massive increases being applied to a business that works on very small margins. Bruce McPherson is the other half of the Tina Berries operation. The business employs about 10 staff. Paying for their labour is an unavoidable cost and it's a big one that's getting bigger each year. The award goes up every year and then the super goes on top of the award so five years ago when you're paying 20 bucks an hour, you were paying another 10% and so it's 21. Now you're paying 25.40 an hour plus $2.40 in super. So you're almost at $28 versus $22 an hour five years ago. You know, it, it keeps escalating, but our 
Our unit price doesn't seem to move by the same proportion, never does. Fertiliser is the next big ticket item, costing primary producers more, and again, it's unavoidable. We've found that our potassium based um, inputs are, are the ones that have more than doubled. Uh, so, where we were paying $60 for a bag of MKP, for example, we're now paying $120 plus. Fuel, or the cost of freight, which is directly linked to fuel, is the next big one when it comes to fixed input costs. Richard Shannon is the chief executive of Growcom. Fresh produce in particular travels a long way around Australia to get from a farmer in far north Queensland to a consumer in Melbourne, and so people underestimate the, um, the significance of fuel as a part of transport and logistic costs, which are a large part of uh, the costs that a consumer will pay in a grocery aisle. But what does it all mean when it comes to breaking down what it costs for a farmer to grow a product, like strawberries, versus what it costs a consumer to buy that product? These samples are the, the agronomic ones. Bruce and Tina McPherson have thrown open the books to explain. On average, a plant will produce a kilo of strawberries per season. So it's very easy to then break down the cost of production of a kilo of strawberries. For the physical plant, it's 90 cents. Then ground prep comes in at 15 cents. There's also pre-prep, which on a strawberry farm includes things like plastic mulch, putting fertiliser underneath, and the trickle tape and plumbing for irrigation. All up, that's another 43 cents. Fertilisers and sprays cost about 75 cents. For maintenance, like weeding and other groundworks, they pay 28 cents. Picking? $1.30 a kilo. Packing, also about $1.30. Packaging, so the physical packet or punnet, is about $0.70 cents a kilo. For freight itself, about $0.55 cents per kilo. Then the end-of-season clean-up cost to ready the farm for the following year is around the $0.16 cent mark. That comes to $6.52 a kilo just in fixed costs, that's compared to less than $4 a kilo five years ago. Because we're growing gourmets, you know, we'll get 40% more than the average supermarket type of fruit. But it, it, there's not a lot left, really. When strawberries are fetching record prices in the supermarket, $6.52 per kilogram in production costs might seem reasonable. But what about when they're sold for a dollar a punnet, which come September is often the reality? Yet those fixed input costs for the grower don't change. The fact remains that whilst we feed locally and interstate, there's plenty of people in agriculture out there that what they do today in the paddock um, feeds people all around the world. If you're a grain supplier or beef, beef grower or grain grower, you know, that's what they're doing. They are feeding the world and they, they need some surety. Bruce McPherson is a Bundaberg strawberry grower. He was ending that report by Courtney Wilson. You've been hearing about the rising price of fresh produce, but there are a couple of popular items bucking that trend, avocados and bananas. And the banana industry in Australia has faced another blow this week after a sixth property in Queensland's Tully Valley was confirmed positive for Panama Tropical Race 4. TR4 is a soil-borne disease which kills banana plants. It was first found in Queensland on a banana plantation in 2015 and it slowly spread to its neighbouring properties. Jim Pekin is the CEO of the Australian Banana Growers Council 
He says increased biosecurity measures are imperative for all producers across Australia. Well, we've been encouraging all growers to put in really good biosecurity. It doesn't matter whether they're in Western Australia or New South Wales or southern Queensland or, or around, around this particular detection in Tully in far north Queensland. Uh, it's absolutely imperative not to have the disease. And it's a lot easier to keep it out than to deal with it once you've got it. You know, one of the closest regions to Tully is Innisfail and there's a lot of banana farmers that haven't done as much as they should. Conversely, those people who have done a lot of stuff, they've spent a lot of money on biosecurity, you know, they have, to be, they have to, to be applauded. They've done a great job. It has quite a cost to growers and to the industry when new cases do pop up. What kind of impact do you expect it to have going going into the future? Well, it's really the impact on this particular grower who's been infected. But as I say, I hope it's a stimulus for other growers to put in biosecurity. It comes in a bad time for the industry because we've got uh, really poor prices for growers and you know, a lot of growers are struggling. So it's just another issue we, we're going to have with uh, you know, the, 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 the prospect that you know, TR4 is going to spread more. And I suppose it's a reality, but uh, you know, it's not fun to have that in your face when you're feeling really down because of prices. In WA, we've seen uh, bananas. I'm pretty sure they're from uh, Queensland down as low as you know a dollar eighty per kilo, which can't be profitable for growers in Queensland to send them to WA and have them sold for just a dollar eighty. Absolutely, yeah. Some of the retailers they make their own mind up about what they're doing. Like the supply volumes are not high this week, and we've got the yeah, dollar ninety type prices uh, quoted by the major retailers, and it's just it translates into well under the cost of production for growers. Uh, by the time they, they get returns from for those boxes of bananas, it's just not good. So when the supermarkets tell you that it's you know supply and demand, in this case, you don't you don't think that rings true? Oh, absolutely, it's not. You know, I can quote you: three hundred seventy thousand, three hundred seventy-seven thousand cartons went down from far north Queensland last week. That's ninety-six percent of Australia's production. That is a lot less than five hundred thousand. And uh, to get you know between twelve and twenty dollars a box is just it's just inappropriate. <laughs> What's, what can change to, to turn this around? Well, we've written to the retailers um, on this very matter and saying the cost of production has actually gone up um, you know, because we've had fertiliser increases and fuel increases and freight increases and a whole heap of other increases for banana growers. Um, you know, I think that they need to be a bit more, um, what's the word, <sighs> perhaps a bit more conscious of their community obligation, including to their supply base. They would argue that they're being conscious of their community obligation by giving consumers a lower price. Um, what do you say to that? At the expense of growers, I just don't think it's on. I mean, you could buy seven bananas for $1.80. Um, like, I, don't, I don't believe that retailers are making any money out of that. What the hell are they trying to do? It just doesn't make sense. Jim Pekin is the CEO of the Australian Banana Growers Council. Gone are the days of choosing between an avocado and a house deposit. Avos have seen a significant drop in prices. But it's not all good news. The consistent low price is actually the reflection of some serious issues in the avocado industry. Supply is outstripping demand and it's set to worsen. That's left growers struggling to make a profit. They're desperate to lift domestic consumption and expand international markets, as Keely Johnson reports. Avocado supply is through the roof across the country. Hundreds of trees that were planted within the past decade are just now coming into production, adding to the surplus of fruit. 
However, Avocado Australia's CEO, John Tyres, says growers may soon see a short period of relief. WA, they had a very big crop last year, so this year their crop is well down on last year. So we'll see, um, you know, later as we come into spring and the summer months, we'll see uh, supply volumes taper off. So I guess you could say there's a bit of a reprieve for this region coming uh, later this year. But longer term, you will see again, most likely, um, massive volumes once again around the country. And that trend's going to continue for the next few years to come. So we've got a lot of work to do to grow domestic and export markets uh, you know, as fast as we possibly can. We're hoping to, uh, to get access to Japan for the, for the whole of the country. At the moment, only Western Australia has access and they'll start uh, sending. In fact, I think the first consignment might be going this week to Japan from Western Australia. So once the East Coast uh, has got access, we'll be able to supply that market year-round. Uh, the other one that the government is working on for us at the moment is India. Um, but you know these are these these processes take a long time, and and they're up to the uh, the uh, agreement between um, the governments of the of the two countries. Nola Stum has been growing avocados on her 160 hectare farm at Comboyne on the New South Wales mid north coast for more than a decade. She says she wants to see more locals eating her fruit. We've got a lot of young plantings that are coming coming onto the market in the next four to five years. Uh, so we want people to eat lots of avocados. And can you explain, you know, if that doesn't happen, if it continues to be a lot of oversupply, you know, these new plantings come in, how does that affect, you know, yourself as a grower? Well, we're working very hard on getting the export market expanded. Uh, we've applied for acceptance into the Japanese market, the Thailand market, and we're approaching India as well as Singapore. We're already exporting into Singapore, Malaysia uh, quite successfully, but we've just got to expand our export market as well. Like Nola, many growers are keen to export and are willing to adjust their farm practice to do so. Simon Newitt has been an extension horticulturalist with Queensland's Department of Agriculture Fisheries for 30 years. He says if Aussie growers want any chance at a successful export market, they have to improve the quality of their fruit, which could be difficult considering the prolonged recent wet weather. Of course, the oversupply means we, we really need to focus on fruit quality now because we want to export. And you've got to have good quality fruit because if you export bad quality fruit, we're going to get a very bad name overseas. We're going to shoot ourselves in the foot. And this season, the way it's been with all the rain and overcar conditions has, has yeah, made it even more challenging to get that good quality. If growers can address quality concerns, it'll make Australian avocados a strong player in the global market. Keely Johnson with that report. From the paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm Michelle Stanley. Still to come on Countrywide, get your taste buds ready for a salty sort of salad. It's something probably better known as sheep feet, but it's become a hit on restaurant menus. You'll find out what it is shortly. But another unexpected hit in Australia, long horns and a shaggy coat, they're very much in fashion right now. In the, the livestock market, that is. The demand for Highland cattle has soared in the past 12 months and breeders can't keep up. Highland cattle was once regarded as a novelty breed worth a few hundred dollars. But now, some longhorns are fetching up to $20,000. 
Annie Brown tried to find out why the Scottish beef breed is in such high demand. I remember us buying a cow with half a calf at foot for $400 well, six years ago. Now that same combo registered would cost you anything in the of $15,000 to $20,000. That's South Gippsland Highland cattle breeder Dennis Karaka. He says the demand for these fluffy, fringed Scottish cows has soared so high they gave up on a wait list. Almost every day we get one inquiry. So per week you get five, six inquiries. It's just gone crazy. I mean, cattle prices in general have gone up. Anyone that has beef cattle at the moment would be pretty happy with themselves. But yeah, the popularity of the breeds certainly... I'd run anything I would have imagined. The breed is even fit for a queen, and it's understood that Queen Elizabeth only eats Highland beef. However, most people in Australia are not buying to eat them. They want to look at them. Certainly um, more people moving towards the country that are um, perhaps not country folks, people that are not experienced farmers. Um, they're buying you know, smaller land holdings, which are not quite economical to farm full-time. So not being in a position where they have to rely on income, they go for something that, you know, looks attractive in the the paddock. Highlands, you know, have very good looks. They're sort of a bit of an attention draw card. Gisborne vet Glenn Hastie has been breeding Highlands for 26 years, and he says it's not just hobby farmers getting into the rare breed, as the demand for embryos is also on the rise. We've had several inquiries for people wanting 20, 30, 40 breeders right now, which can't be supplied, of course, but um, either you know biding their time or um, getting into embryos so they can get a few more females on the ground in the next year or two. We've imported embryos a number of times um, over the last probably 15, 20 years, and we've used that to broaden the genetics in Australia and imported semen from Scotland. Um, but as far as the domestic demand, there's only been little bits and pieces of people being interested in them up until this time. And now, just with the paucity of females available, I think financially it's a very good option. Stock agent with Cochrane & Parker Wodonga, Katie Lewis, says the demand for Highlands has changed dramatically in the past 12 months alone. You get the occasional request, people ringing up and, and asking about the Highlands, and the first thing you do now is warn them about the price. We sort of opened up a can of worms last year when we put them on Auctions Plus and it just went ballistic. I still haven't seen bidding quite like it. They're a bit of a fad. I suppose six or eight years ago it was Belted Galloways. It was Speckle Parks for a good while there and they are still a very popular breed. The Highlands are are one that I don't know how long we're going to see this price bubble for, whether the fad will wear off, but they are a hard animal to sort of replicate in the way of crossbreeding. So to come across them, I think that's what's driving the price is the rarity of them. Wodonga stock agent Katie Lewis speaking with Annie Brown. And if you'd like to see what a $20,000 Longhorn Highland coup looks like, head to the ABC website or do a search for ABC Rural and Highland. Rising salinity has destroyed millions of hectares across Australia, killing crops and native bushland. But one WA farmer needs more of it. In Western Australia's Great Southern, farmer David Thompson wants the saltiest water he can get for his one-of-a-kind saltwater greenhouse. He took Angus McIntosh through his crop of edible saltbush to explain how he turns them into a salad for Australia's top restaurants. So we're looking at uh, green cocella in here. So this is often called a salty grape, and chefs use this with uh, mainly with seafood. So 
It's got a nice zingy, sweet, salty taste to it. What do you reckon? It's definitely salty. Yeah, <laughs> it's full of full of salt, mate. That's what it's, that's what it's there for. So, yeah. and so, how much uh, of this would you put in a in a salad or or on a in a garnish? Depends. I mean, I, chefs use it in all weird, and wonderful ways, but often it'll go with take a floret. So it might only be four or five grams, just to set off a dish like a garnish. What we'd like to be able to do is actually um, make it a side dish as opposed to a garnish, so they use more of it, and then we'd sell more of it and make a bit of money then. But uh, that's uh, that's what they usually gen- generally use it for is to with oysters or with um, any sort of seafood, it's a perfect match. Run me through a couple of the species we're looking at here, because you've got rows of different salt bushes here. Where, where do these come from? They're not salt bushes as such, but they're all salt tolerant, so they're all halophytes. So we only have two criteria for the plants we grow. One is they're halophytes, and the second one's they're, they're, uh, they're edible. So we'll take plants from anywhere in the world. So we have some from Australian plants, but the majority are actually from overseas. Have you had much to do with the local Noongar people as far as some of those native species here are concerned? No, we, we've tried to work with the Indigenous people, but we haven't had any knowledge given to us about what plants can and can't grow in salt land. But again, it's, it's a problem that's been has arisen due to European farming methods, and we've got to find a solution to fixing the land. It's, it, this thing's more about an environmental repair. That's what we're about. Yep. Do you think that Indigenous people should have a role in cultivating and profiting from those native species? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's a great opportunity for Aboriginal people to, uh, to get into agriculture is through that native plant agriculture, yeah. Do you think that's something you would consider for your own business? Yeah, if, if, we, if we could find a, a good partner, absolutely, yep. Are you worried perhaps that people might feel misrepresented by this business? I mean, the name Mujapun, it sounds, you know, a little bit like an Indigenous name. Do you worry that perhaps that... There might be a false impression some people might get. Maybe, but the story really is about restoring land degradation. So that's that's the story we, we go with. It's it's. I'm not trying to take anything away from Indigenous people, but we want to try and fix the problem we've got, or the, the problem we've created as a, as, a, as a farming industry. So how did you come to have this greenhouse arrangement that we're looking at here? What what exactly goes into a saltwater greenhouse operation? Uh, the greenhouse has been here for two years. Site selection was really important. We had to be in it, or try to get an area where there was no wind uh, away from any, all the other farming activities, so we didn't want to use other productive land. Finding suitable groundwater, so asking the diviner to find salt water was quite unique for him. So that, that, that process, the drilling was more expensive than we thought we were going to pay, and there was nowhere to get advice. That was the thing, because no one else has done this, so that was the hardest thing, was where do we get advice on how to do it? So when you say no one's ever done this before, what do you, what do you mean there specifically? Well, just a, a saline hydroponic system. I don't think there's... I, I don't know of anyone in Australia that's done it, and there's a bit of work being done in the UAE and in Israel and in the Netherlands, so we're pretty keen to get across there and have a look at what they've done so we could actually learn from someone that's maybe had a few years' experience in doing it. How do you go about exactly plumbing a system with salt water? Does that not play havoc with the entire greenhouse operation? Well, you should be careful not to use too much steel. So everything is plastic and you just don't want too much water wasted. So we have a, a fairly expensive timer that we actually don't want any water going outside the bags that we put the water in. And so what concentration of salt are you looking for altogether and how much salt bush are you actually able to cultivate with that? When we first started, we put in a freshwater tank just in case we had too much salt and then we could dilute it. But we're about 20% seawater. We'd rather be 50% seawater. I think that would give the plants more flavour. But 
beggars can't be choosers when you when you're drilling for water. Really, you've got to work with what we've got. That's a strange thing to say that you know we're in the Great Southern in a pretty saline area, and your water's not salty enough. Yeah, well, you want the flavour, and that's the thing. And you'll probably notice from this greenhouse to the to the shade house that the recent rain has diluted the salt, so it doesn't taste nearly as good as the as the ones in this greenhouse that has concentrated salt. And so you also cultivate a bit just on the land itself. Does that have much impact on the salinity of that land? Yes, and I think the expansion will probably be more in ground than in the greenhouse. So we have about 15 hectares of saltbush at about uh, 2,000 plants a hectare. It's still too early days yet to see the impact on groundwater levels and organic matter and uh, all those sort of things yet. And I don't think there's enough land to... uh, to make an impact, I think we need to have thousands of hectares to have an impact, and, and there's thousands of hectares available to do it. So it's really just a template what we're doing here to see if we can actually build a business or build an industry, industry that uh, we can use salt land uh, to make a profit. Farmer David Thompson sells saltbush grown on his farm near Katanning in Western Australia's Great Southern. He was speaking with Angus McIntosh. That's it from me for Countrywide this week. I'm Michelle Stanley, and I'll catch you next time. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.